well into the wee hours of the morning, they stayed open because they were the oasis for racers coming in. It had started snowing. It was freezing cold. This place had a fire going. People were stopping and getting burgers. They're like, you would have never known there was a race going on, right? All these racers are just sitting at the table. They're drinking soft drinks. They're ordering cheeseburgers. It was like a party going on at this place. Welcome to the Dark Zone, an adventure racing podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatins. Thank you for taking the time to give us a listen. Today's guest, Stephanie Ross, USARA's Nationals Coordinator, competed in her first adventure race, Odyssey's 12-hour Jeep Kentucky AR at Carter K State Resort in 2002. She raced it solo and was completely demoralized by the course and also completely hooked on the sport. A year later, she designed her first race, the Red River Gorge American Classic, also known as the FIG, now the longest-running adventure race in Kentucky. She continued to organize races under the Flying Squirrel Adventure Banner until 2015, when she turned over to the unbridled AR series and the FIG to 361 Adventures. Her efforts now focus on bringing more women and youth into the sport through the Women of AR campaign. She has directed two U.S. ARA national championships and has assisted with planning and vetting courses for nationals since 2010. Our conversation is expansive and wide-ranging, from her background in AR, how to be an aspiring director, her important and vital work with the women of AR, and of course, the best race food. This was a fun one to record, and I hope that you find Steph as interesting, as exciting as I found her to be. Sit back and enjoy episode five of The Dark Zone. An adventure racing podcast. Steph came to the attention of the Dark Zone uh, when doing other interviews with other guests. Her name came up often, and so I wanted to bring her onto the Dark Zone and talk about her role in adventure racing, her origins, where she started in the sport, um, her race directing, her racing, and then she's involved in several projects at both the national level and also with the women in AR. So, uh, Steph, welcome to the Dark Zone. Glad you could join us this evening. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to have you here. Um, so where we like to start with the, uh, with the dark zone podcast is the, the origin story. Um, you know, adventure racers come into the sport through a variety of different means. And I'm curious how you got involved in adventure racing, perhaps your first race, how did it go for you and a bit of your, your lineage as you've gone through your racing. Yeah. So my first race, um, was the Odyssey Jeep Kentucky adventure race in 2002. So this was back in the days when Don Mann was still head of Odyssey Adventure Racing. He put on the first adventure race in Kentucky, and that was at Carter Cave State Resort Park in October of 2002, as I recall. And uh, I had actually just run my first marathon in September of 2002. And over the course of that marathon, developed IT band syndrome. And so I was not able to run running was too painful and uh i was really afraid of losing my fitness after having worked really hard to get into shape for that marathon and uh, so i bought a bike for myself just a little hybrid bike and i didn't really like biking so much as i did running and i felt like i needed something to make me want to to get on my bike and something to train for and some sort of competition so I'm sure I looked up on the internet or something. I don't really recall how I found out about things back in 2002, but I probably 
looked up, you know, mountain bike and race or something like that in Kentucky and came across this uh, Jeep Kentucky adventure race. And it was a 12 hour race. And, you know, I had just qualified for Boston. So surely I could do a 12 hour adventure race, right? Like how hard could it be? I had no idea what an adventure race was, but it sounded pretty good. (laughs) And so uh, I registered for it. I did it solo. I was completely demoralized and uh, ready for more. So, so that's not an uncommon line that we find. So, so Boston qualifier, congratulations, right? And uh, you know, you have to qualify to run that marathon uh, somewhere in the uh, relatively speedy category. Um, my, my, my humility uh, lets me say that I too qualified for Boston, right? So welcome to the club, you and I. Yes, um, thank you. I was in much better shape then than I am now, sadly. Always were, always were, right? <laughs> but, but, but but once again, this is part of the adventure racing personality that we see, right? You you had you had a, uh, an injury as a result of your running. You had you qualified for Boston, tremendous accomplishment, and you felt the need for more. Um, and so in 2002, and you, you left out the internet, like what did we possibly do before online racing? But you discovered this race and you entered. So let's get this straight a race that you had never done done before or heard of before you entered in solo and you just did that just because you knew it would work out. Okay. Like talk about your personality though. That you sort of take such a leap like that. Yeah. So probably um, uh, overconfident and arrogant would have been (laughs) probably the way to describe my mentality going into it. Like it hadn't occurred to me that this was something I, I wouldn't be able to do. Other people were doing it, so I knew it was possible. And I I didn't really know anyone else who did it, so I, I couldn't find a teammate. And I was still relatively new to any sort of really even a fitness-related lifestyle, let alone, you know, outdoor and adventure-related, right? So I didn't really know anyone who I could – wrangle into doing this with me. So I I figured I'd do it myself. It probably comes from being um, like one of the middle children in my family, child number two. My mom told me that when I was, uh, oh, probably three years old, I guess, she got a phone call. She was in the bathtub at home and uh, she got a phone call from the neighbor down the street and they said, (laughs) we have your daughter here. And she said, no, no, you can't have my daughter. She was just in the tub with me you know, 10 minutes ago. And I just let her get out to go play in her room. And they said, Oh, no, she's she's definitely here. So somehow at the age of three, I had managed to um, open the door, I put on my shoes. <laughs> she said, I had both of my shoes on. And I was, you know, halfway down the street in our little Lexington subdivision, just off wandering by myself. And she said that was pretty common for me when I was little at the mall. Back when, you know, we still had malls, I would go running off by myself all the time. And she said one time she, you know, found me. They were always scared because back then there were fountains going in the mall and she was always afraid I was going to drown in a fountain. And she said, you know, Stephanie, aren't you scared when you run off that way? Don't you, you know, doesn't it make you scared when you don't see me? And and she said, I just looked up at her and very innocently and said, well, no, I knew you'd find me. <laughs> and so 
so somewhere, you know, imbued in me from a very young age was sort of the confidence to go off and explore on my own and somehow and, know that things were going to be okay. So, and, and so that sounds like that's been a through line through a large part of your life, you know, three years old until this very moment, you don't, you don't hesitate to dive in with both feet into these things. And it sounds like that first race was there. You mentioned that you were completely demoralized at the end of that race, right? You just were, were clobbered by the caution of the court. And we've all been there, right? We've all like, what was the distance between the complete demoralization and the, I can't wait to do this again. Yeah, it was, um, there, there was no space there at all. It, you know, it was a 12 hour race and it was the typical disciplines plus repelling. And so I was, oh, and caving because it was at Carter Cave State Resort Park. And uh, so I was really, of course, like everyone, really looking forward to the rappelling, right? Because that was something kind of new and different for me. And uh, I, I spent 14 hours. <laughs> on a 12-hour race. In a 12-hour race. I spent 14 hours mountain biking on a, a bike that I had borrowed from a guy, right? Because I had bought some little hybrid. You couldn't take that out. So I borrowed a mountain bike from a guy. I rode it one time before the race to make sure I knew how to shift the gears. And then I went out and did this race and you couldn't even ride your bikes. It had rained for a month beforehand and we were on horse trails. So you were pushing your bike the whole time. And uh, so I spent 14 hours biking, trekking, and I did the caving part back to the lodge. And from there you would go do the paddle and do the rappel. And so after 14 hours, I got back and of course I, I couldn't do the paddle or the rappel, right? The race was over. The only people still there, there was one other guy who was also new and he was solo. And apparently he had a lot more trouble with the navigation. So my, my IT band flared back up during the race. So I wasn't able to run that trekking leg was, you know, pretty miserable, but my navigation, and I don't really remember the navigation being hard in that race. I thought you you just kind of followed this one trail that circumnavigated the park and maybe got a few points that were close to the trail. But apparently there was something to it because I kept running into this other guy and he kept being lost. So my knee is giving out. I'm like limping along, limping along down this trail, just trying to finish. <laughs> and here's Chris. And I'm like, hey, Chris, let's let's go together for a little while. You know, we're... 12, 13 hours into this thing, we should have been done. Okay. So we kind of travel along and it's clear that I'm going really slowly and he could be running. So, you know, go, go on, Chris, don't wait for me. So he takes off and then, you know, 15, 20 minutes later, here he is again. Hey, Hey, Chris, what, what happened? <laughs> well, apparently he had taken a wrong turn. That happened like three times. And the third time I find him, he is laying on the side of the trail, curled up in the fetal position. You know, it's dark at this point. The race had started at 7 a.m. and it was supposed to finish at 7 p.m. It's probably 8 p.m. at this point. He is curled up in a fetal position beside the trail and I come across him. Chris, what's going on? And he, he looked up at me and said, I was waiting for you. I got lost again. And I want to know if I can just stick with you to the rest of the race. I like that. He knew so apparently the navigation was trickier than my recollection would have it be. So accurate, he and I finished the race together. So he credit to him my knee for, up, for at least picking one right? of the two. In, in true things, AR so fashion, he's like, like listen, I'll together, take your knee up and way. help you get to the finish line. But you line. mentioned if that you a year after that race, you direct <laughs> <her>. What was <laughs> that? 
so he and I yeah, lived so across the, the finish line that together, the and the only Red people River still there in classic were the and what was the uh, what were the distances? What were the Don disciplines? Mann, how did they go? My mom. And Chris's um, so, girlfriend. Yeah, and uh, Red Gorge Marathon my mom Classic had been it's waiting interesting there at the lodge story in how that came to be called the all fix. Day, so I'll tell you right, about for that. For me to come back. Right. Um, with her camera ready, uh, ready to take my pictures. A lot of people only so know it as the fig now, you know, but and she its original name was actually all day. Like Red she River saw me Gorge one Marathon time classic, and what happened is around that same time, 2002, 2003, and so for the whole rest of the day, she doing been waiting for me to come back in and go paddle and rappel. She got a company down in the Red River Gorge groups out. For repelling and team afterwards. building and, look, and things I, like I that. It was called Two North Outfitters. Your mother had no flash and, on her camera, uh, so she couldn't take a picture because it was dark. I told the owner of Two oh, North Outfitters, Jeff Kiley, like about one of this adventure race like I had done. And I said, you know, we'd come in really should have one of these in the Royal Gorge. It was such an awesome, life-changing experience for me. It's really sad. And, you know, Jeff said, well, if people will pay us to come do this and have a good time, then I'm all for it. You know, he was a businessman and he was happy to Later, take people on adventures in the gorge. So he said, you know, okay, well, let's that was do the it. Expression. it was, it was and so he kind of race. handled the admin right. side of things right. and I handled the course design and, and that side of things. And uh, at the time, Don Mann was, we heard, looking to host an adventure race in the gorge. And so Jeff kind of felt like, you know, well, wait a second, this is my territory. You know, I, he had a hostel there in the gorge and kind of had a presence. And so he felt like it was kind of this race to be the first adventure race in the gorge. And so he had reached out to the U.S. Forest Service about getting the permits and uh, found out that that no one else had a permit for for the race. And so he started to advertise the Red River Gorge American Classic is the first permitted adventure race in the Red River Gorge. And one of the ways that he felt um, he could ensure that we got the first permit was he gave he wanted it to have this big epic grand name, Red River Gorge American Classic. And then the nickname comes from Don Fig, who is this legendary U.S. Forest Service ranger. Um, he retired with something like 1,700 search and rescues under his belt. Yeah, so he was a real legend in the gorge. And uh, so Jeff felt like, you know, he wanted to honor him. But then I think it was also sort of a way to to get in good with the U.S. Forest Service that we had nicknamed this race the FIG. And uh, we gave it the the tagline for it will tell you what the length was because on the backs of the shirts at the time, it said 60 miles of fig and pain. And so that was our, our distance that first year, it was 60 miles of, you know, trekking, uh, biking, paddling. And we had a rappel for the first many years of the fig. One of our signature um, events was the rappel. And we had these huge, you know, 100, 150 foot rappels um, off the cliff lines there in the Red River Gorge. So is the, so I, I don't know the timeline exactly. Was that one of the earliest races in the country? Um, it was pretty early. It was in 2003 was the first year for that. I know that one of the longest running races is the Mission Adventure Race. And it started the same year, I think. I'm pretty sure that the first Mission was in May of it's in May of every year. And I believe it was in May of 2003. And then the fig is the first Saturday of November, 2003. So that, so that, that must've been exciting for you. You know, you, 
it sounds like from your your you said earlier that when you talked a bit about your experience in the in the Jeep Classic in the Jeep race, um, that you hadn't you you didn't know anybody who did the same who did these kinds of things. So you signed up solo. So is it safe to say that you didn't have a deep background of outdoor life, backpacking, camping? Like, did you like what was your did did this all of a sudden blossom and open up for you a part of your life that didn't previously exist? Yeah. Um, so that gets into sort of my, my pre pre story, which is when I was growing up, uh, my family did a lot of camping and outdoorsy stuff, um, you know, on a, on a very recreational, you know, weekend camping sort of thing. And I loved that. I loved, you know, rock hopping and playing in creeks and, you know, catching minnows and going fishing. And I was really a tomboy as a little girl. Um, and somewhere along the way, I, I lost that, you know, through high school and college and law school. I lost that and uh, got really out of shape. And so through my 20s, and, and I sort of lament that, that I kind of lost my 20s, um, you know, I drank a lot. I smoked a lot. I got to where I weighed over 200 pounds. Yeah. When I turned 30, um, you know, I sort of looked in the mirror and said, well, this is, is not a good trajectory <laughs> um, and decided that I needed to change that. And so I went through some pretty, you know, radical lifestyle changes at the age of 30. And that's how I ended up finding uh, running really was I through... <laughs> Um, well, I started doing a yoga for weight loss video that my sister gave me for Christmas and I lost some weight just at home with my little yoga video. I also hurt my back. <laughs> and so I ended up in physical therapy and that sort of introduced me to a gym and I didn't want to lose the progress I was making with my back injury. And uh, so I joined the YMCA and I joined the YMCA March 7th of um, 2001. And I stopped smoking March 14th of 2001. And um, I ran my first 5K in September of 2001 and ran a marathon in September of 2002. So that was kind of my, you know, basically over the course of a year and a half, I went from weighing 203 pounds and being, you know, the poster child for unhealthy living to, you know, running significant mileage every week. And that was running and, and lifting and doing classes at the Y were really kind of my thing. So I was sort of a roadie, you know, what you might mm -hmm. think of as a gym rat and a, a road runner at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, what adventure racing really did for me was kind of remind me of what it was like to be outdoors. You know, it, it took me back outside and that sort of joy of boulder hopping and trekking through creeks. And I don't know if you did Rootstock's Two Rivers uh, mm -hmm. race Memorial Day weekend, yep. that yep. trek down Rock Run over Every those boulders and through that creek. I could have done that all day. Well, that, uh, you fantastic, know. right? Yeah. The people who said they were happy for that leg to be over, I'm like, you know, that could have been the entire race. 36 hours of that, I would have been thrilled. That's what I love about being outdoors. And that's what adventure racing really gave back to me. And it, and, it, and we, and you and I kind of track 
ironically enough, from a, even chronologically, we track very closely because I too spent a large part of my twenties doing anything but exercise. Right. And you, you, and you put on, you put on eight pounds a, a year for 10 years, you're 80 pounds heavier. Um, it also, and to sort of your point and the way I look back on not having my twenties, but having my thirties, my forties, and now my fifties is I didn't fall into the trap that a lot of people fall into when they're very, very busy as teenagers in their twenties, they put a lot of wear and tear in their bodies. So when they turn on that switch in their thirties, they've saved a lot of those overuse injuries that they would otherwise have. I know a lot of former high school and college athletes that in their forties and fifties now are just beat up. And you know, our sport, while our sport has its, um, has its challenges, it's not necessarily high impact. Right. We're not yeah. we're not pounding. We're not full blown sprinting. And also we're not cutting. We're not we're not going side to side. So I, I I think of that a lot when I think about, well, I gave up my 20s. Well, I happily gave up my 20s because I got all of my 30s and all of my 40s. And now the first six months of my 50s. And so you're spot on. And I also agree with the idea that the um, I didn't have any outdoor experience growing up. Not at all. Uh, very much an urban experience and then a suburban experience. But my family didn't camp. We didn't hike. You didn't do any of that stuff. Um, and what I have found is that my, I love the fact that my love of the outdoors has come into this part of my life through adventure racing, because I find the outdoors to be an incredible playground. It's a playground. It's, it's the, it's the, the bouldering, the rock hopping, it's the mountain biking. It's, and so I don't know if I would necessarily go for a hike on my own, right? If I'm going to, if I have two, three, four spare hours, I might train for something, but I'm not going to go for a walk in the woods just to go for a walk in the woods. Um, and I think adventure racing for many of us has given us, we, we went on both counts. We get to do something that challenges us and we do it in beautiful places. And so I completely get what you're talking about, completely get what you're talking about. Um, what's nice too is that by coming into it in, in the 30s, we came to it with a maturity that we recognize how important it is to us. That when I was in my 20s, I saw the world a different way. And when I came into the sport, you know, I really came into adventure racing 10 years ago. The 10 years before that were mostly mountain biking, road riding, triathlon, all of that stuff. So I definitely I, I hear exactly what you're talking about when you when you mention that. And the fact that you put down those habits that were just unhealthy for you. And so you went to the Red River Gorge American Classic, which, by the way, did you call it a classic the first time it was held? Yeah. Yeah, I've got Good the t-shirt. I've got Good the t-shirt. That was Jeff Kennedy. That the the marketing, the naming, all of that was Jeff Kennedy. He wanted it to have an epic name, but a catchy nickname. And it was brilliant. Yeah. So so tell us a bit about what's it like down in a, in, in in Kentucky in the Red River Gorge outside of Lexington. Is it is it most is a lot of rappelling? Is it mountain biking? Is it caving? Like what what are the what disciplines really play well to that area of the country? Yeah, so to that area of the country, not mountain biking, <laughs> tragically. Sadly, Kentucky is a horse state, right? We're known for horses and bourbon. We are not known for our mountain biking. Um, and that's because, yeah, we, we don't really have a ton of great mountain bike mileage. There are some pockets here and there, and, and kudos to the people who work really hard on what trail mileage we do have. Um, but the Red River Gorge does not really have mountain biking to speak of. Um, there are people who have developed some some fun, adventurous gravel routes in that area and kind of sandy creek <laughs> biking routes, that sort of thing. But, yeah, it was never about the mountain biking. Um, the fig and racing in the gorge is always has always been about the scenery. 
And so it's it's always been super challenging to design a course there. Actually, you know what it's probably ideally suited for would be something like a Rogaine where you're all on foot and you get cliffed out all the time. So you're having to make a lot of route choices to uh, to. Yeah, because you get clipped out so much. Um, so that's really what the gorge is about. It's a great place to go trekking and to navigate um, technically. But as far as the paddling goes, um, there's not a lot of reliable water. The Red River is a wild and scenic river. So it's really beautiful. And when it's flowing, it's super fun, but somewhat technical when it's flowing. And so, you know, the Red was, we've paddled on it a number of times in the fig. Uh, but it's never been ideal because you never know what the water level is going to be. Some years it's been good. Some years it's been a drag. So we end up paddling on. Uh, there's a little lake there at Natural Bridge State Park called Mill Creek Lake. We've paddled that a number of times. We've gone very far south in the gorge. We'll get you down to uh, Beattyville, which is on the Kentucky River. It's at the confluence of the three rivers that form the Kentucky River. And that's great. You can paddle all day long. Um, but you don't have the scenery down there. There's some decent fun gravel riding and mountain biking down there. There's great paddling, but you don't have the scenery that you have up in the northern area of the gorge. So it's always been super challenging to try to put together a quality race, especially within 12 hours, right? If we had 24 hours, it'd be easy to get people to the southern part of the gorge for what it has to offer, the northern part of the gorge for what it has to offer. But trying to do it in 12 hours is really challenging. Um, and in fact, 361 Adventures, who is now directing that race. So I turned that race over along with this, the unbridled series that I had started. I turned that over to 361 Adventures in 2015. And, uh, they have continued the fig each year. This year, for the first time, the fig is not going to be in the Red River Gorge. They're going to have it at um, Cave Run Lake, which is a, just a little further north in um, central Kentucky. And it's actually, as far as adventure goes, it's, it's a better venue. It's got good mountain bike trails. It's got an enormous lake. It's got some nice scenery. Um, it's just not quite as scenic and beautiful, you know, as, as Red River Gorge. Red River Gorge is known for its 200 plus miles of sandstone cliffs. It's an international climbing Mecca, literally. Um, you know, and so it's got just arches and boulders and cliffs and, and all of that. And so Cave Run doesn't have that in the sort of, um, you know, density that the gorge has, but Cave Run's a great venue and it'll be a great venue for this race. And so, you know, those of us who have done the fig for years and years are a little bit, you know, melancholy, I think, for the fig moving to Cave Run, but I totally support them. I know how hard it's been to try to put on something new and different in that same venue for 20 years now, nearly. Um, you know, and so I'm I'm looking forward to doing the fig at Cave Run. I think it'll be a lot of fun. And you've had a fair amount of work in directing races, right? And so the the finding finding the, the the Goldilocks spot, right? A spot where you could do multiple disciplines within a certain geographic area. You can get the permitting. You can get you can line all. That's a really really hard thing to do. Um, and if I'm correct, Red River Gorge. You mentioned the climbing. I remember seeing a, a documentary not too long ago about the ice climbing that they have there. That down in the hollows, they actually during the winter they actually get up on some ice down there. So it's a beautiful area, but it's, it's a, it's a very challenging area to do anything else, but trek, it sounds like. Yeah, it is. And even the trekking, 
can be really difficult because it tends to be a lot of out and backs, right? right. Because you get clipped out at the head of every hollow. So it's um, it's very challenging. And it's also very challenging from a permitting standpoint. Um, you know, we've found that with the U.S. Forest Service, it's just gotten stricter and stricter, especially in the gorge. Um, they've they've become pretty strict about not having people go off trail. And, you know, so it's been very limiting in terms of trying to create a course that's navigationally challenging. And it's a it's a lot looser up at Cave Run because it's it's just a different designation for that area. And there are less concerns about sensitive areas and things of that that sort. So, yeah, it it is. It's difficult. Um, and it has become more difficult over the years. So I think, you know, taking it up to cave run, it, at least for a little while, is probably going to be a great move. Yeah, I had a chance to do 361's breakdown several years ago, and I we mountain biked on a road. It was the steepest road I'd ever ridden down. Yeah. I couldn't get over how steep it was. And it was this amazing course. And it was, it was Western Virginia, West Virginia. And I remember we saw the United Mine Workers headquarters. And I remember we went through Hasey, um, and I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly in West Virginia. And um, my, my, my partner and I, we, we were so slick. We looked at the maps and we set off and we got to Hasey first. And we were so excited to be in the first place. We're high-fiving each other. Everybody knew the route better than us. And there was a bridge that we didn't know about. And we were actually in last place, which, as you know, if you're, if you're in last place, just wait around long enough because I don't change eventually. Um, but that's an incredibly challenging and beautiful area in which to race. And, and that's one of the gifts, right? You, you, you have a, a wonderful natural landscape to do those things. What the, the challenge, though, is getting together all of those various as a lot of pieces to bring together. And I do agree with you that permitting, permitting has always been challenging. Right. It always has been challenging and it's getting more challenging just because so many people are using the outdoors now. And the fact that the world is just so much more crowded that those who give permits, those who go through, you know, they go through the, the risk mitigation and sharing of sources. So many more people are outdoors now. That's a covid. That's a wonderful covid side effect because the natural resources are being used so heavily. But. There's so much use and overuse of the land now that land managers are really twitchy about doing anything. And uh, a classic example is up here in the, in the Adirondacks, Adirondack Park, which is this beautiful area in New York State. It's the size of Massachusetts. That's how big the wilderness is. There's so many multiple source, multiple agencies that, that you can't get a race there because it's it's private land, public land, it's state land, it's federal land, and it's really hard to do. Um, and so I think that's a very common challenge for race directors to put that together. And you've directed your fair share of races. How many think you've directed overall? Um, well, started the FIG in the first year for that was 2003, and I gave that up in 2015. So about a dozen of those. And then I started the Sheltoe Extreme Adventure Race and had the Sheltoe Extreme South one year. So that was probably, I'm going to say maybe six to eight of those, something probably about eight of those. And then um, I directed a couple of the Buff Betty Women's Adventure Races, not the ones that Adventure Addicts Racing is doing now, but Way back when, um, there was an organization out of Ohio, Ambush Adventure Sports. They put on a women's only race, which was an interesting concept. He would invite a local 
female race director to his concept was that he would have this race in multiple venues and for each race he would have a local female race director design that course and head it up so i did that um so that's, that's clearly well over 20 you've directed well over 20 races yeah and then i had the unbridled adventure race series which was a partnership with kentucky state parks and i'm sure i directed a dozen or more of those i'm going to say probably 40 races something like that and then so, of course nationals i directed nationals twice so 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 a lot of a lot of adventure racers you know they they, they get their fill of adventure racing they love it and then they look around their local area and they decide they want to put something on inside they'll look that's what always happens right and and last year we were we were, were so fortunate during covid um, a group of guys out of just outside Philadelphia with, with, with trust the compass, they built their own unofficial adventure race in the middle of COVID, right? It was safe. We can go to it. And we did it on our own. And so clearly there's a subset of adventure racers that want to get into directing. What advice would you give to people who are listening to the podcast who want to do that? Uh, you know, some, some, some advice is common sense, like go be around other directors, right? That's, that probably is a, a good piece of advice. If someone wants to direct a local race, what do you suggest? How do they start doing that? Yeah, so I think volunteering for races um, is a really great way to see what's going on behind the scenes. Um, and then probably the best place to start would be to start a conversation with um, your whoever the permitting authority is going to be if you're on public property to talk to them about what what's feasible, what they're willing to allow you to do before you go invest a lot of time. Because, yeah, the fun part of it, right, is putting together the course, course design, course setting. That's the really fun part. And that's what everyone wants to do. What no one wants to do is go through the process of getting permits and dealing with registration and all of that administrative stuff on the backside, which is why volunteering and especially if you vo volunteer to do something other than man a TA, right? Because manning a TA is not going to give you insight into all of that administrative work that goes on before the race. Um, you know, so volunteering in some capacity that will give you some time with the race director to really understand what's involved because it's a, it's a super heavy, you know, time commitment. And uh, yeah, so probably starting with your, your local permitting authority, just to find out what they're going to let you do. And I'll give you a good example of the importance of that. Um, when I directed USARA Nationals in 2015 down at Pine Mountain State Park, part of the course, my original concept for the course was going to have racers go up to Cumberland Gap National Historical Site. And uh, that was going to be kind of the climax of the race is their their king of the mountain bike ride would have had them but race up the, the mountain to Cumberland Gap, drop their bikes, do a great big trekking leg around Cumberland Gap. And so I had spoken with the permitting authorities at the National Park. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that we were all on board. We had met in person and, you know, everything was was moving right along. Um, I spent a lot of time scouting Cumberland Gap for that trekking leg, <laughs> a pretty epic day out on the mountain. It's funny as a race director, there's so many more parts of the 
terrain that you see that never make it into the race, right? That's yeah. the whole point of yes. scouting is I go out and look at all of the things that look great on paper that don't look great in real life. <laughs> you and know, you have to you go say, walk them. You have to go actually yeah. see them. I, I, yeah. I, I've done a few races um, where in which the, the race director, God bless them, they they thought they had good beta on the course. They had a good map in their hand, and they they designed the course in such a way. Then when when the when the rubber hit the road, it was nowhere like they thought it was going to be, and then the place just goes crazy. Right, that yeah. that happens. So you have to spend. So from a race directing perspective, you point out you have to spend. You probably spend exponentially more time on the course than the racers ever will, because you have to know does this work? Does that not work? Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. So many places you go out and you think on paper it's going to work and this is going to be a great way to hook up, you know, this this checkpoint to this checkpoint. This is going to be and you try to make it from A to B and, you know, you just spend hours and hours beating your way through rhododendron and finally conclude there's no way I can send racers through here. This isn't fun. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. then after, so, so you, you were, you were talking about how you, you were working with the permitting authorities, but Cumberland Gap, and that was going to be the, 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 the big climb. What happened? Yeah. So at some point <laughs> they realized it, and I had not intentionally like kept this from them. They just hadn't asked. And I didn't know to mention it to them. They had assumed that the USARA was a nonprofit organization. And it turns out that you cannot have an event like this, a sporting event permitted in on National Park Service property if you are not a nonprofit. And so when they found out that we were not a nonprofit, um, they said, "We, we can't let you race here at all. So it it wasn't a matter of, you know, paying a different fee or anything like that. It was, we will not permit the race to come through here. And so, you know, I had to redesign the course. So, you know, that's a conversation that obviously I I had engaged them and we were having conversations, but needed to be more explicit about or ask more questions. Um, You know, from the start, I spent a lot of time in Cumberland Gap which was not time wasted, right? It was beautiful time. time. Yeah, but it didn't get us any closer to a final course. And I I think that's a challenge too that that aspiring race directors have too, is that you have to educate the permitting authority about what an adventure race is. Because we know very often people, is it a mud run? Is it a Spartan race? And you're like, no, no, no. It's And you explain it to them and they don't, people can't really wrap their heads around it. And then you mentioned the map and compass and they're like, their, their head pops off their, their, their body. Right. And so to your yeah. point, the, they, they made assumptions regarding USARA because, you know, not profit makes sense because no one's ever made a profit adventure racing. Let's, 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 let's call that loud and clear. Right. Um, and so the idea being that you had to teach them about the race. And then there was that, that issue with it, with the nonprofit mm-hmm. status. Right. And, and to your point, that wasn't wasted time. No, no time is wasted when you look at it the right way, but that's a lot of time to spend on a race course. That's never going to get used. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of trips, a lot of hours. Um, yeah. For, you know, and a lot of it was some pretty heinous bushwhacking. <laughs> I didn't enjoy that part, no. but um, yeah, to, to not be able to use it. So yeah, another thing that that race in that location makes me think of is finding a local champion. Now, most people who want to direct a race 
are are their own local champion, right? They're wanting to direct a race in their backyard because it's beautiful and they want to show other people that. If it's not in your own backyard, then I think it's super important. And, you know, maybe even if it is, if you haven't engaged with the local chamber of commerce or, you know, tourism commission and things like that, those are great local champions that can help, um, you know, break down barriers. They're not going to get you a permit from the National Park Service, (laughs) but they can, you know, put you in touch with the right people at the county park or the you know state park or whatever other you know that sort of thing they can be a really great resource there they can help put you in touch with um the local ems people or get you a paramedic or you know things like that so finding a local uh champion is um is also really important i think to to having success and being welcome in the community I also think, too, I would I would argue after getting the initial go ahead, a, a permitting authority will not say you're all clear. Go for it. They'll say we're willing to talk with you more about it. Tell us more about the race. My recommendation is before you get you dig into the, the scouting of the course too much. Look at the race logistics. Um, I know of a, of a local race director who wanted to do something in a, in a state forest, not that far from where I live in New Jersey, um, in southern New York state. And had general permission to do it, but then realized that there was no parking available, that he couldn't. And then the the state forest wanted to charge him a bus state that he would have to have racers park off site. He'd have to get a bus and bring a bus to the race site. And once logistically it gets that crazy, the, the whole race falls apart. Right. So after you get the initial go ahead to keep talking about it, think about those logistics. Where people put their cars? How late is the is the park open? Do they allow off off trail travel? Right. Do they allow after dark travel? What are their rules about? You need to bring water safety with you if they're crossing a body of water, like all of those things, because I agree with you. Um, I could scout courses all day. Right. It's that's the fun part. It's the actual filling out the applications and the forms and developing the relationships along the way and always keeping in mind that they hold the final say. So you have to work with them. They don't have to work with you. You have to work with them. One way to really open up that door and and get the conversation going and and sort of getting them on your side is to lay the map out in front of them and say, okay, you know, I've got this huge area, say Cave Run Lake, right? I've got this huge area. I can design a really great adventure race around whatever you want me to avoid. You show me where you want me not to be (laughs) and I'll come back with the course that avoids those areas, right? If there's a sensitive area, either culturally or environmentally or, you know, whatever it is, I don't want to put my racers there, right? I, you know, I I believe really strongly in, in being good stewards of the land that we run through. So let me know where we need to avoid and we can do that. I can organize a race and all I need to do is put a checkpoint here and a checkpoint over here to ensure that my racers go this way and not that way, you know? And so I think when you, um, when you explain it that way and you give them an opportunity to weigh in, in fact, doing that, I've had um, rangers who were the, the permitting, you know, authority, the ones who were going to make the decision. I've had them make suggestions to me. One time I was working with a, ranger who was himself a mountain biker and he was awesome he said you know i really think you would 
have a much better experience over on this mountain bike trail, you know, and so he was offering me suggestions for what the course could look like. And, you know, that's ideal, right? When you've got the guy who's going to be signing your permit telling you, hey, this is a great mountain bike trail, take them over here. It, it doesn't get any better than that in terms of designing a great course that, you know, they're going to be happy to have you run. Alongside that, too, we find here in the Northeast, especially with the Northeast um, industrial past, that many parks and many state parks are were, were converted. There were former factories. There were grist mills, things like that. And I always appreciate when race directors try to work in a cultural, historical part. Um, race not too long ago took us through. There was a, a, a section of a, of a park that was actually a World War II POW camp that brought us through the remains of that camp and had us do the orienteering section and had us read the historical markers, things like that. Um, a race one time down in Delaware that took us right through this beautiful town. And the um, that part of the, there wasn't a punch. You had to go, you had to go find the dates that were on the historical markers, right? And so that's always an, a, a, a great thing to bring to a race. And to your point, to say to the permitting authority, what do you want us to highlight? Like, what is the part of this course that you want people to see, to bring home, to talk about? Because all of those land managers, sometimes they're in competition with each other in different parks, and they want to draw more attention to their park for the purpose of building their programs. And so you're right. It's relationship building. It's taking advice, not getting too far ahead of yourself, being respectful of those you have to work with. Um, and the big thing is don't design an amazing, super beautiful, great course and not realize that you can't bring that discipline there. Like mountain bikes aren't always allowed everywhere and kayaks can't always go everywhere and things like that. Um, having, having directed well over 20 races, right. We could say that what, what trends are you seeing in adventure racing? Now I know you're involved with the women in AR initiative. I know you're involved with USARA as someone who's been closing on 20 years inside the sport. What direction do you see the sport going? What trends do you like? What trends might cause you concern? What do you think? So I love the fact that one of the things COVID brought us was this concept of virtual racing. Um, you know, virtual racing is a great way for people who are adventure racers who would like to try their hand at race directing, but don't want all of the headache of the administrative stuff. It's a great way to put on a, a quote race without having to worry about people registering and even getting permits in theory, you know, if what you've got are people going out um, on their own and basically doing a, a virtual course, you know, that's not part of an in-person organized race, I think the rules there are gonna be a lot more flexible, right? In terms of, of permitting and that sort of thing. So you're the second guest to talk a bit about that. Can you define a bit more, if, if someone is listening to the podcast and wants to do a virtual race, what does that look like? Does it involve their phone? Does that involve, are there, are there checkpoints to find? Are there areas to go to? What does that look like for the, for the, for the normal racer? Yeah. So it varies, uh, you know, just like adventure races vary. I've done a couple of them and they were, were very different. One of them was um, the fig last year, and they actually had flags in the woods. So it felt very much like a traditional race. And in fact, they, they kind of used the same concept of some of the bikepacking races that have a grand depart is how I think of it, where they 
said they basically left the course up for 30 days, I think, something like that. There was a window of time. And that's really the key distinction, I think, for a virtual race is that it's available for a window of time. And so it makes it super flexible um, for racers who have other commitments, work schedule, family, whatever it is. It's really nice to be able to go out there at your own convenience um, and you're racing either against the clock or against other racers. And generally you're self-reporting your results and you can do that. You know, different organizers have different ways of verifying. And the ones I've done, it's been pretty clear that, you know, it's kind of on an honor system. We're not racing here for big prizes or money or anything like that. There's no point in cheating because you're just cheating yourself, right? We've, We've put this course out there for you to go out and have fun when you cheat, um, you know. And so the uh, with the fig, you had actual flags out there. And I think we like took pictures of ourselves at the flags or something like that. Maybe we used some people use trackers, right? So many people have Strava and different ways to track themselves. I think that my teammate had her spot device or something for the fig. I can't remember, but, you know, basically we just sort of kept track of our own time and, and we went out there the traditional fig weekend, the first Saturday of November. And there were a lot of other people out that day because that's sort of historically always been the day, but then other people went out, you know, the week before the week after it was great for them to be able to people who didn't have a regular um, you know, Monday through Friday work schedule, we're able to go out during the week when it's a lot less crowded in the gorge and you could wait and pick a day with great weather, <laughs> right? So a lot of flexibility that way. Um, you know, my assumption is that they they did not go through the whole permitting process because there was no fee for it, right? Typically, typically with the U.S. Forest Service anyway, it's charging a fee that that creates the issue in terms of permits i think you're allowed at least it used to be that you could have up to 75 people gathered if you weren't charging a fee you didn't have to have a permit so you know i i think it's probably perfectly legal to have an activity like that you know depending on the land that you're on but to have that without getting a permit so you know if you're not going to charge a fee um then it, it just makes it so much easier you're not having to worry about registration you're not having to worry about permits any just a lot of the logistical issues you're just getting to do the fun part and the racers are getting to do the fun part right so you know you you miss some of the camaraderie and and things like that of having a a single event with a set time but you know for the most part i and i certainly enjoyed it every bit as much as i have any other fig race that was sounds, to your point it sounds like a, it sounds like a benefit from our need to go everything had to go virtual in our life over the past 18 months to two years and as a result of that th- they can now build these virtual race courses where i have heard where there are some that they take laminated qr codes and they attach them and you take a picture with your phone and then that, that logs you in there mm-hmm. um there's also geofencing right if you get if you have a phone on you and you get within a certain section you find it. And to the point about maps and compasses and phones and all that, I I, I always like to say that if, if you feel the need to cheat during an adventure race, just do so a favor and just and just go talk to your therapist, like work that out. Like if you have to like if you have to like cheat in a completely informal way, you need to work some things out with somebody. And so to your point, you're right about that. Um, and so I think that's a very positive trend. And I think that gives 
the, 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 the amateur race director, if you will, the opportunity to create a course locally. They're able to, to work around a lot of the administrative challenges that take place. There's no exchange of revenue back and forth. So therefore, a lot of the permitting issues go away. So I think that's a really good trend that we're seeing because what it does, it, it opens up the outdoors to a larger swath of people, which is what we want to do. Right. That's, that's one thing. Any other positive trends that you're seeing? Anything that should give us make us feel good about the state of adventure racing? Well, I love that pack crafting is becoming a thing. I mean, <laughs> with this caveat, like I do not like to paddle a pack raft. <laughs> right? I mean, anyone who goes out and paddles a kayak or a canoe and then goes out and paddles a pack raft, right? I mean, how, how could you enjoy that, right? It, it's horrible. It's so slow and so inefficient. But how cool is it that you can get a boat up into the top of this gorge, what Pine Creek Gorge, whatever the name of the gorge was for the two rivers, right? Like that was the only way that you were going to get in a boat and paddle down that gorge is if you were able to take your boat with you. And there are so many places like that that, uh, you know, you aren't going to be able to paddle that body of water unless you carry your boat with you on your back. Um, and so I think that that's been a lot of fun. It opens up, it, you know, for race directors, it certainly gives them a lot more flexibility. Um, you know, it opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of course design. And I, there are plenty of places where just trying to get rental boats is really hard. You know, I, I have had to pay a lot of money to get people to drive boats in from, you know, afar to try to get them to a race course. And, you know, on the one hand, it, buying pack rafts is a, a huge cost and we don't want that to be a barrier to entry for racers. Um, on the other hand, if that's the only way that you're able to, to put on a race in a given area, then it is what it is. And I thought that <clears throat> Rootstock did a great job with two rivers of number one, making it optional so that it wasn't a barrier to entry and then also facilitating rental of pack wraps for people who wanted to try it but didn't have one or you know didn't want to commit to going out and buying one you know they they made it easy for people to rent from the company that shipped them in they shipped them right to the location so you know they did a great job with making that something that everyone could try and see if it was something they wanted to do I agree with that a thousand percent. And, and, you know, every blue line on the map is now a possible trail, yeah. right? That's, that's, that's the, and so to your point and like so many things in life, it's, it's the risk versus the reward. It's the return on the investment. Like, yes, there is a, there's a, a, a barrier to entry based upon the cost of what a pack raft is, but as a result, more complex, deeper, more thorough races can be made. And to your point, rootstock racing was really a leader in how they, they made it easy to work around that. Either you could rent, you could trek. Um, and so I don't think anybody, nobody walked away from that race because of the pack raft usage. And that's the, that's the trick, right? The trick is you don't want to bring an element into a race that because of that element, somebody says, I can't do it or I don't want to do it. And anybody who didn't do two rivers because of the pack raft section just didn't want to do two rivers. The pack raft didn't drive them away. Didn't yeah, drive them away. I agree. I agree. I, I thought they really they did an outstanding job of, of making that a very accessible, well, you know, it was $36 for a 36 hour race. So you don't get any more accessible than that. But yeah, we had, uh, no, we had just, a great time uh, during that race. 
Yeah, the the links they went to to you know facilitate people being able to rent, you know, locating that vendor who would ship them and educating them on what this was about and just making that possible. That's a lot of time and effort. I can appreciate how much time and effort it had to be for them to make that happen. And you know, that's very cool. And I, and I think so and I and I don't want to I don't want to put words into your mouth at all, but I think a third positive thing that we're seeing now is that in these the interviews that I do here, the people I speak with that there's no doubt that there's a very, very vibrant adventure racing, race directing and racing community out there. I mean, yeah. I mean, how many, I mean, how many off the top of your head, we could take off so many race directors who are putting on thoughtful, well-run fun races, which by the way, and, and I think this is a great trend is they're working very, very hard to make those races inclusive. They want, they want, they want new people racing. They want to make courses that are beginner friendly. They, 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 they want to make certain that adventure racing has an onboard that is possible for all people and they don't want to be a sport that knocks a lot of people out. Yeah. I mean, you see so many resources to help people find teammates, to help people find gear. What you don't have a bike, we'll find you a bike. You know, it's, I, I see so much of this community, the AR community is so, you know, welcoming and helpful and sharing, you know, all of these podcasts, Look at look at podcasts growing up around AR. What are these podcasts about? They're about sharing what the sport is about, making people feel welcome in the sport, drawing more people into the sport. You know, and we're seeing that in in so many different areas with the women of AR group, the women who stepped forward, who wanted to be mentors. You know, I asked the first couple of people. And then after that, it was so many women stepping forward saying, what do I need to do to be a mentor to this women of AR group? And it's because they have so much knowledge and experience and enthusiasm for this sport that they want to share with other women, you know, and that, yeah, I, I did some triathlons early on when I was running and, and in my road, my very brief road career before I found AR and I didn't see that level of support for other racers and wanting to build up your competition. To that point, adventure racing is a, lot, is a lot like the ultra running community where the ultra runners are very, very supportive of each other. And, and I think that the level, the level of suffering is so high and it's so challenging that we're always there for each other on the course and off the course. I mean, if you're in a race and if it's, if you're in a four person team and if you're up against, you see, you know, the four person team, you're not going to give them directions to the CP. But if they're hurting, you're going to give them food. You're going to take care of them. You're going to check on them. Like it's, we aren't that cutthroat. We do like to win. It is it is a sport after all. But um, but to your point, we, we the, the level of of concern and care for each other is very very high inside the sport. And that's and I think that that's what draws a lot of people back. I think I think when you're a newer racer and you do a race, I think the level of support and excitement that people have for your presence is very powerful, and you're and you're being cheered on. And I think a a really nice thing about adventure racing is, is that it's very democratic in the sense that the course is open to everybody, right? You could get on a, you can get on a course and you are lining up alongside perhaps the best team in the sport. You have the same maps, the same access and the same opportunity. It's up to you to make it for yourself, but at least you have the opportunity to go and do those things. Um, do you want to talk a bit more about the Women of AR initiative? I know that's very popular and very successful. Tell, say us a bit more about that. Yeah, thanks. I am very happy to talk about um, the Women of AR. So it's a campaign that started in, what is this, 2021? I want to say maybe 
2016. I need to sit down and write down my history better. Um, basically, USARA National Championship historically was um, a mixed gender race. And for years and years, Troy Ferrer, who was the president of the USARA before uh, that transfer took place a year and a half ago, two years ago now, um, for years, he had had a lot of pressure, mostly for men, to have an open division so that they could have all-male teams for a variety of reasons people had that they wanted to be able to have male teams. And he resisted that for a long time because he, you know, felt pretty strongly about keeping AR close to its roots, which was a, you know, a mixed gender team. Um, And then finally, for various reasons, he decided he would open that up. And so he created this open category. And the first couple of years that there was this open category, there were only all male teams. And I've been involved with nationals since 2010, either I've I've directed two years and the other years I've been a course consultant and helped with vetting that sort of thing. And so, you know, I was watching this race and I was seeing these male teams out there and it was disturbing to me that we didn't have any all female teams. And so I wanted to encourage more women to do the race and for there to be some all women teams at nationals. So I put out this scholarship, basically. It was, I called it the Women of AR Scholarship. And um, the first year that we offered that, we had three teams, I think. We had three female teams who took us up on that. And it was basically just a $300 scholarship uh, towards nationals. And, you know, that was was well received. And um, a friend and fellow adventure racer here in Kentucky, Jim Benton and his wife, Valerie, um, said, you know, we we think it's great what you're doing here. We'd like to be a part of it. We'd like to help. Can we contribute? And so that they basically doubled what my commitment had been to that scholarship and. I think in the second year we had four teams and then in the third year we had five teams and um, I think that's right. And then Drake White, who is an adventure racer out of Illinois, said, hey, I want to be a part of this, too. And, you know, I want to want to support the effort. And so basically we've got, you know, the three of us who fund this scholarship and it's three hundred dollars which goes to the first 10 female teams to qualify and register for nationals. And up to this point, we haven't reached 10. Um, This year, right now, we have seven female teams who are registered. So that's a record for nationals, and we're excited about that. And so what we've done, because uh, we see that there's sort of an, you know, a, a natural obstacle to getting more women into nationals, and that's that we don't have enough women doing AR generally, right? We need to increase the pool that we can draw from. And so that's why over the last year and a half or so, um, we decided to try to focus on getting more women into the sport generally. And so that's where the Women of AR group on Facebook was born. 
And that group is all about basically trying to recruit more women into the sport and then making them feel supported and giving them the resources they need to do a race and to be successful. Um, and so, yeah, basically that uh, those additional funds that we haven't used in scholarships for nationals, we've been using to buy things like T-shirts and um, we're, we're putting in orders for more swag. And, uh, you know, we do a weekly contest where people post about whatever topic. So we kind of have a topic of the week and it's been really incredible the amount of conversation that started and the amount of information that's shared um so it's it's been really great it's been a great um learning experience for for me and i know for a lot of the women in the group it's been a really great way for people to you know be able to ask questions in a super supportive non-judgmental environment we've had some zoom sessions um with our mentors so our mentors are a panel of there are seven of us, including myself, experienced adventure racers, all of us um, with sort of at different levels of competitiveness or, you know, different backgrounds. Um, so everybody's sort of bringing different things, different perspectives. You know, we're, we're a wide range of ages. Um, so basically, we're available to mentor so women in the group can reach out and establish a one on one relationship with any one of us. And I've done that with a number of women. And so we'll have Zoom sessions to talk about what their goals are, what races they're looking at doing. I've you know done navigation sessions. I've debriefed after races with some of my mentees to talk about what went right for them and what went wrong and you know really just to to be there to be a one-on-one -on -one kind of resource and so that's been um, a really great program and it's been fulfilling for me you know i've created relationships with women all over the country uh, that i wouldn't have have met otherwise so that's been super fulfilling and um, i'm really optimistic the group grew very quickly to over 500 members, uh, predominantly women. There are some men in there, and that's okay. I've made it clear that this group is not um, exclusively women, and that's mainly because we see men as having a role in supporting women in adventure racing. Um, you know, there are certainly, I'm pretty sure that Abby Perkis would tell you that it would be a lot harder for her to race if her husband, Brent, <laughs> weren't a supporter, right? You know, they've got two kids and and they're both having to balance family life um, with racing and they do it pretty well as far as I can see. So, you know, men are definitely part of the formula for women to be able to go out and adventure. Um, you know, and part of the reason for me of wanting to get more women into adventure racing is because I want to see more kids in adventure racing. And I think one of the keys to having more kids outdoors and adventure racing is if their moms are doing it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's sort of both. I want women to have that same aha moment that I had, you know, in my early thirties when I rediscovered the outdoors and, you know, boulder scrambling and Creek walking and all of those things. I want women, other women to have that same experience. I also want, um, you know, women to bring along their kids or their nieces, nephews, whatever, um, and get them outdoors as well. So that's my motivation. And I've been really um, 
I, I humbled by the amount of support that we've had and the people who have been contributing. There's, you know, so, so much talent out there and knowledge and it, it's been really terrific. And to, and to that point, I mean, one of the things that draws us into adventure racing and keeps us here is the quality of the people that we find ourselves around, right? We are, we are naturally magnetized or repelled from people we do or do not like. And as a result of that, people return to adventure racing because they like the quality of the people. The, the Women in AR initiative has been extremely successful. And, and the large part, it's due to your leadership. It's due to the amount of women that are involved. Um, but it's not fair to think that it's only the responsibility of the women in AR to support the women in AR. And you mentioned Abby and Brent a little bit. What, what guidance, what recommendations, what advice would you give for the men of AR to help support that initiative? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I think one of the things that holds women back from getting into adventure racing is just this. I, I think part of it is a, a stereotype that women are not as proficient at being outdoors, um, certainly map reading. That's the big stereotype that women can't navigate. And so I think, you know, probably the, the thing that men can do that would be most helpful is just to have respect for the competency and the capability of women in the outdoors. Um, you know, I, I think there's this assumption that if you form a mixed gender team, the man is going to be the navigator. You know, I've, I've got a, a good friend, adventure racer who um, had been racing for a number of years and was a very competent navigator. And she joined a team for nationals. This has been a number of years ago. And uh, the two men she was racing with, neither of them were anywhere near as skilled as she was or experienced as she was. And they actually had a conversation about who was going to be the navigator. And she just was sort of taken aback, like this would not have been a conversation if she had been a man, right? She clearly was the more experienced, the better navigator among the three. The only reason it was a conversation, she felt, is because she was a woman. And she's probably right, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I think just having respect for, you know, women's competency and their capability, um, is a really great starting point. And, and not falling into the trap of, of, of being raised in a culture and in a mindset in which women, they, their, their thoughts, their actions, their ability become second to those of a man. But instead of saying to themselves, well, no, I'm on a team and I have a teammate and everybody here has the capacity to contribute equally. And therefore we're going to begin the conversation equally, that it's not going to be an allowance or, you're not doing anyone a favor by letting them navigate or letting them carry the gear and things like that, but rather seeing that person as a full-fledged member of the team from the very beginning and then creating the dynamic with your teammate that anybody on that team, whether male or female, can ask for help during the course of the race. Because one of the most common challenges that, that people talk about during these podcasts is that a large part of venture racing is you share gear back and forth. You take my pack, you put me on tow, things like that. And it's very hard for people to do that, to ask for that type of help. And I would argue that from a mixed gender team, assuming that anybody at any time can both give help and ask for help with no assumptions on who can do what is the best way to proceed. 
Yeah. Humility. Yeah. Being setting ego aside and being humble. Yeah. I spoke with a woman and I won't say who it was, but she did um, an expedition race not that long ago. And, you know, going into it, she she felt or, or was aware that she was not the strongest, fastest one on the team. But there were times during that race where she was feeling, you know, particularly strong and she had a teammate. Uh, a male teammate who was not, and she repeatedly kept offering to take some of his gear and to take some of the load off him, and he just wouldn't do it. And you know, and that's just a lack of humility that doesn't serve the team well at all. I know that there are a lot of women out there who are mothers, and I I think that one of the big obstacles for them is the concept that women are supposed to be mothers first and foremost. And, you know, you just see so much sacrifice and a woman who is taking time for herself, you know, to care for herself, to be healthy and fulfilled and and happy. You know, there's this sense of guilt, there's, you know, shaming going on, all of these different, you know, this concept that moms are, are not supposed to have their own lives, right? Um, yeah, and and that seems to be changing a lot, as far as I can tell. That's it's improving, um, but you know, certainly the men out there who are are dads or otherwise in a position to be able to provide support, either emotional or you know, physically being able to to care for kids while their moms are are out enjoying a race or training or adventuring, whatever it is. Um, you know, the men who are in a position to be able to offer that kind of support, obviously, I, I think that's something that's super important because, you know, moms who are are healthy and happy and have their own, you know, enriching life experiences are, are better moms, right? I, I think we all know that. And yet, somehow, this isn't completely solved. <laughs> Right. And I and I and credit to you and, and to the work that you're doing to bring the entire venture racing community along. So so thank you for doing that. Well, um, thanks. So so we did talk a lot about your own racing. Right. We talked about your directing. We talked about a beautiful part of the country you live in. So a question I always like to ask during uh, the podcast is if you had a race to go back to a race that you could you could take another shot at, either whether to improve your performance, whether to be experienced it again. What's the one race you'd go back to in a heartbeat? Oh, that's a, wow. That's a good question. Probably I would say, um, well, I've got a couple where the race did not end as I would have had it end. And so I'm going to choose these, not because they were necessarily, you know, the, the best race I ever did that I would sort of want to relive that experience, but just because they're races that, I, I didn't really get to experience the full race and the course was, you know, a pretty big epic sort of course. So the first one would be, it was called the fear P H E A R. And that stood for Potomac Highlands expedition adventure race. That was a 60 hour race that was put on by ambush adventure sports. I mentioned them earlier. They were an outfit up in Ohio many years ago. They put on this race in West Virginia. So it was down around the Dolly sods area. And, uh, 
there were so many cool elements in that race and a lot of them that I didn't get to experience because well, there were just a lot of environmental factors. So part of the course had to close because of flooding. And then some of it was just navigation. Like, I don't know if it was our issue or the map issue, what it was, but there was a lot more course out there that we didn't get to experience. Um, and so I would go back and do that. And interestingly enough, that race would have been in, must have been in 2004, I think, because that was the only year I have not raced the Mission Adventure Race. That was the second year for the Mission Adventure Race, and it was the same weekend as this 60-hour race in West Virginia. So I went and raced the Fear and missed the Mission. Other than that, I've never missed a Mission Adventure Race with a Dino Series over in Indiana. They're always a quality event. That's an 18-hour race in May. And uh, I love an 18-hour race. I think an 18-hour adventure race is sort of like the half marathon of running. Like, it's long enough that you've earned your supper, but not so long that you can't walk the next day. <laughs> exactly. I, I think the 60-hour race is like, it's two and a half days. So you have to sleep sometime, but you don't yeah. want to sleep because it's only 60 hours. And it's like, what do I do? Like, you know, we the 36-hour race, we didn't sleep during the during the, uh, the two rivers. We just went all the, went all the way through. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, and at the end that we had the hallucinations going on at the end, I, uh, we were paddling down the, the gorge at the very end and up in the woods, I was seeing the huge inflatable rat that they put outside New York city construction sites when there's non-union labor. <laughs> like I just saw it like, and I, you know, and you see him, I go, well, there's the rat and, and you just keep paddling. Right. So you're at 18, 18 is the half marathon is a really good way of saying it. I really, that's a good expression. Um, what's your favorite race food? What do you like to eat during the race? Oh, um, so I, I love that. Well, so when I can't eat anything else, when I'm bonking hard and nothing else will go down, my teammate, Sarah Dahlman always brings boiled new potatoes with butter and salt and pepper or cheese tortellini. Those will go down when nothing else will. Um, but I really love those, uh, spicy Buffalo, uh, pretzel chunky things like Snyder's maybe brand. I don't know what they are, but they're spicy and hot and crunchy. Those are good. And pop tarts. And if they're, and if the, those pretzels are packed with peanut butter, they're even better. <laughs> Every peanut butter makes yeah. everything better. I, yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. And pop tarts. I never eat pop tarts, you know, any other time. So they're my, my indulgence during races. I have a, I have a non, uh, non AR friend who uh, listens to the podcast from time to time. And he was laughing because in the, in the nutrition part of one podcast, we were discussing cake and cookies and salt and sugar. And he's like, that's nutrition. And I go do a few adventure races. That's nutrition. Um, my famous nutrition error was thinking that I could fuel myself for a 36 hour race entirely on cliff bars. Ooh. And that, that didn't. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that went really bad after about seven hours or so. I was like, I couldn't look at anything, but we, but we found like the magical, three o'clock in the morning, open all night store, which as you and I both know that when you come across that during a race, when you turn the corner, usually you're on your bicycle and you look down the road and you see a glow and you think to yourself, <laughs> don't lie to me, adventure racing gods. Don't lie to me. Don't be fake. Don't be an oasis. Don't be a mirage. You turn the corner and there's some poor guy working, minding his own business and 
50 adventure racers descend on the store in a heartbeat and buy everything in sight with sugar and salt. Yeah. Oh, magical yeah. sport, Steph. The magical sport. <laughs> and there's that beautiful, like, local cafe owner. I think this was um, when Nationals was up in New York. This was the Naira year for Nationals when that little cafe up on top of the mountain stayed open, like, way, Pat, well into the wee hours of the morning, they stayed open because they were the oasis yeah. for racers coming in. It had started snowing. It was freezing cold. This place had a fire going. People were stopping and getting burgers. They're like, you would have never known there was a race going on, right? All these racers are just sitting at the table. They're drinking soft drinks. They're ordering cheeseburgers. Nice. It was like a party going on at this place because uh, nobody could could bring themselves to leave. And we those had, people stayed open all night. They were amazing. We just had the same experience at the last Nationals, the one we had down in North Carolina, where we had the- Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the yeah. little place on the corner. You yeah. know what happened? When we were out there vetting the course earlier in the week, we saw this place and I stopped in and I said, hey, how late are you open on Friday night? And they said, well, we would normally close whatever. And I explained to her what we were doing. I said, you know- if you're able to stay open late that night, you're going to get a ton of business because you're going to have a lot of, you know, tired, hungry, thirsty racers coming through. And they were asking us, so what sort of things should we stock? We're like, well, if you've got, you know, soft drinks, they're like Gatorade. They're thinking all this, you know, high quality race food. No, I'm like, no, no, no. no. Pack Mr. Pibb. Mr. Pibb and yeah. here. <laughs> Mountain Dew, baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew and, you know, the uh, little sugar, little caffeine. Magical. Magical. Keep it all. So, uh, and I always laugh, by the way, because during the podcast, the as we as we go on, as we're speaking, when when this topic comes up, everybody brightens up. Like, Yay! <laughs> Let's talk about Pop-Tarts. This is the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that yeah. would just what, what advice would you give to a new eraser? There are people who listen to this podcast that are thinking about it. They've never done it before. What do, what do you want? What, what, you want to be the voice in their ear during the race. What do you want them to hear? Oh, um, you know, it it will get better if when you hit that really low spot and you're curled up in the fetal position on the side of the trail. Right. Waiting for you. Waiting yeah, for you to come along. Waiting for me. I have been curled up in the fetal position on the side of the trail because of dehydration. That's my um, Achilles heel is I never drink enough. And so I get dehydrated. And back in my early days when I was racing with Sarah Dahlman and we were going really hard. Um, oh, man, I could get so dehydrated so fast. And I remember being curled up in a fetal position in a ditch, just like, you know, I don't care. Let the wild dogs get me. I'm done. <laughs> and, you know, all it took was like half an hour and some decent hydration and some food. And I felt good again, you know, and um, yeah, there have been races that I've pulled out of because I just was so far gone, you know, because of dehydration. And when I look back now and think about relatively how relatively quickly I recovered once I got, once I stopped moving, got some hydration in me and started feeling better, you know, in a 36 hour race, who cares if you spend 20 or 30 minutes sitting there trying to come back from that place, you know, at the time you just think, okay, I just want to die. I can't keep racing. You know, I'm, I'm done. Don't, don't give into that. Just, 
sit down somewhere, stop moving, take in more liquids, take in more food, and give yourself half an hour. Give yourself an hour. Give yourself however long it takes. But, you know, give yourself that time. And you're probably going to come back from that. And you'll be able to keep going and you'll be, you know, really glad that you did. Yeah, really good piece of advice I once got during a race was that no matter how you feel, it's going to pass. Yeah. And that goes for feeling good also. That when you feel great during a race. You know, I, I remember during the nationals, we were just talking about, I, it was a really hot day. Um, and I remember it was a lot of folks were getting a lot of heat stroke and really having a hard time. And we were, we were, we were off the bike and we were, we were off the, we were off the boat and we were paddling back up to do more, more of the bike. And um, it was really, really, really hot. And I felt like a million dollars on the bike. I felt great and strong and nothing was going to stop me. And I recognized right away that that was right before the bonk was to come. I, and I, and I pulled over by the side of the road and I got in the shade and I pulled my teammates over and it was eat something, drink something and get back on the bike. And that's because I knew what that felt like. Cause it's happened to me before. That's so why I think a good piece for, for, for uh, newer racers is, is to pay attention to past experience and try not to repeat those errors. Cause if I kept paddling on that Hill, uh, I, I know for a fact that I was going to disintegrate in 15 minutes. And once you go in the hole, it's hard to come out of it. Right. So try to stay out of it. Right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. Keep um, drinking. <laughs> how heavily are you involved with nationals this year? Um, so I'm in my usual role as as sort of course consultant. Um, I'll be going up the Monday before the race and I'm basically going to be going out and making sure the checkpoints are all where they're supposed to be. Supposed so, to be yeah. beautiful. I'll yeah. be there doing my usual thing and I'll be, you know, volunteering during the race. So cheering people on out on the course. I always enjoy that. For our listeners, can you talk about where nationals are this year? What's the yeah. general geographic area? Yeah. So Cable, Wisconsin, it's the Schwamigan National Forest. So maybe people have heard of the Berkey Biner. It's that vicinity, that area. Yeah. And how long is that race? It's 30 hours. 30 hours. And this is the and this is the U.S. area. This is the national championship, which, by the way, didn't happen last year because of COVID. So this is a bit of like a family reunion. Yeah. Yeah. They had they did a virtual nationals last year. But yeah, this will be the first year for everybody to be back together with the USARA under the new leadership of Mike Garrison and the new board. Um, and yeah, it should be a really terrific race. It's being organized by uh, 180 Adventures, which is headed up by Paula Waite, a woman. And uh, from what I understand, she puts on awesome races. And so we've been working with Paula. This was supposed to be the 2020 race. So we started working with Paula in 2019. And I'll tell you, this was the first time in 2019. Well, when I first started, uh, the first time I directed nationals was 2011. And so I became involved in 2010. I went up and was the course consultant and vetter in 2010. And that was a really great experience for me to prepare me for 2011. The only other time I've seen a director do that is Paula. She Paula came to the race in 2019, um, brought her whole team down just to observe and see, you know, it had been a while since she had been at a national championship. And so they wanted to to educate themselves and kind of see how everything went and, and see it from behind the scenes. And so, you know, that to me spoke to her level of professionalism and seriousness. And that's been evident in every meeting we've had. We've had many, many 
Zoom meetings and phone calls, reviewing the course and, uh, you know, getting things ready. And she's just been been great to work with. You know, she's been very open to suggestions and feedback. And it's really been a great team effort getting this course together. And, you know, she she came to us with a great product to begin with, but she's been, you know, very open to suggestions for improvement. And um, so I think it's going to be a really quality course. It's going to be a great event. And, you know, her her preparation and organization and skill um, is really going to shine through. The navigation is going to be really solid and interesting, and it's going to be a great race. Excellent. It's good to see. It's good for it's good for adventure racing. It's good for the racers. It's good. It's good for the country. Right. It's good for all of us to get back into those more familiar events. And adventure racing proved, like many other institutions, that we were able to be flexible and able to make adjustments. Like the fact that we had the virtual races and the fact that we went last year and we didn't really have a national championship traditionally, but we're back now. It speaks a lot about who and what adventure racing is. Well, 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 Steph, thank you so much for your time. You gave more than enough of it, and so we really appreciate having you in the dark zone. Um, best of luck at nationals working on the course best of luck with your racing and we hope to see you on the course so thank you very much thanks so much brian this has been a lot of fun thank you steph for joining us on the dark zone the adventure racing community is fortunate to have such a dedicated and hard-working person on our behalf best of luck to stephanie and all the racers at the upcoming united states national championships Please check out our website, www.ardarkzone.com, or drop me an email at brian at ardarkzone.com for any ideas on topics or guests. Remember, always check your maps and always check on your teammates.